Hey, it's Jennifer. Okay, weekly listeners, I had to jump in here quick to give you a heads up that this week's podcast is long, really long, but it's also deep and trying hard to give space to much-needed conversation around where the world of environmental protection and advocacy groups are and where these groups might want to be headed through the lens of just one of these groups, the California Native Plant Society. And finally, where we as gardeners might fit into this work. It's not a definitive or exhaustive or perfect conversation, but it is a heartfelt and true conversation among four people who love plants and who love humans too. As always, thank you for listening and for being here with me in these conversations that elevate what gardening is, how we talk about it, and what we grow as a result of it. Finally, a heads up to look and listen in the first podcast break this week for a special announcement for sustaining donors to Cultivating Place. I think you're going to like it. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. April 17th through the 24th of 2021 is California Native Plant Week, designated by the California State Legislature in 2010 as an annual celebration of the fantastic diversity of plants on whom this large expanse of unique and uniquely beautiful land and history rests in so many ways. In honor of these plants and their communities, I'm joined today by members of the California Native Plant Society to chat about what CNPS is and what it is striving to grow into more fully. In looking back over the course of this last year and many years prior, there is renewed clarity and urgency around the environmental world generally, having quite a bit of acknowledging and resetting to do for itself and for the greater benefit of the human and greater-than-human world around us. It is in that spirit that I am joined today by CNPS staff member Liev O'Keefe, Senior Director of Public Affairs at CNPS, as well as by Chris Sarabia, Conservation Director of the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy and the Chair of the Board of the CNPS, a volunteer position. And finally, by John Sanders, director of the Delphinus School of Natural History, who is a CNPS community member and volunteer consultant for the society in a variety of areas. I am so pleased to welcome you all to the program today to talk more about how CNPS is growing up into the future. Thank you, really, for being with me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jennifer. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I'd love to start out with something a little more personal from each of you. And I'm going to start with the same question I ask everyone. And that is, if you were to give me a personal mission statement for your own gardening or plant cultivation practice or garden loving, outdoor loving heart in your life, what might that be? And I'm going to start in the reverse order and begin with you, John. I think that for me personally, my whole mission has been to help guide the next generation of environmental stewards, 
which is why I focus my activities primarily on elementary and middle school students. Delphinus takes students out into nature and teaches them how things are integrated, how things are interconnected, teach them about human impact on the environment and why sustainability is so important. And my goal is to develop a generation of naturalists who are not just casual observers, but people who are invested in maintaining or mitigating you know, damage that's already been done and maintaining what we have left. And so uh, that's actually my quest. I, I'm not so much focused on adults anymore because we're on our way out. <laughs> and so you know, I'm, I'm 70 years old. And so my job really is to help develop the next generation of environmental stewards. I mean, that's how I see my mission. Uh, let's go to you, Chris. How would you answer that same question of a personal mission statement for your own plant-loving cultivation practices? Well, I guess my mission kind of connects with my personal story, you know, and so as a kid, I'm uh, just you know, with my grass stained knees, I was jumping walls into railroad track easements and empty lots and into the riverbed and settling basins. And, you know, that's, that's because that's where life existed in, in the city in, in Southeast Los Angeles. And so, you know, we had frogs and snakes and egrets. And so that was my wilderness as a young kid. And so I go back to those locations now, and I notice that those are the only locations that have native plants left. And, and so these little remnant populations that that may have inadvertently influenced me early on, you know, not knowing as a kid though. And so I, you know, I think that played a, a role in my life. And, and from the gardening angle, you know, I was always recruited to water our small, our small mil, milpa or our corn and squash rows. And, and I would garden with my parents here and with my grandparents food forests in Mexico and, and so my parents, they're agricultural people by blood, you know, and, but they did it for survival. And um, and so as I grew older into adolescence and young adulthood, I was I was kind of called to the great outdoors because of this this ingrained oneness with the plants and with the cycles of nature. And um, and so, I, you know, lately I've been visiting where my parents grew up, um, which is really remote and hard to get to. And these places are, they're pretty much, they're, they're way nicer than Yosemite and Zion. And so if you can imagine that, you know, that's where they lived, they, they were in it. And essentially that was their career. So, you know, kind of full circle is, you know, now I'm making it my career and my life dedication to protect these, these areas, to protect and restore these wild places. Um, that's kind of in my bloodline. And, uh, even though those places are in Mexico, you know, there, there's the equivalent here. And so I want to protect those plants and everything that, that thrives off of them. I like that. And the, the wildness that is uh, still able to thrive in even very small ways in our, you know, highly modified human impacted urban areas is, I think, the, the way that many people learn about and meet uh, wild plants and wild creatures for the first time around our globe, but specifically in our urban areas in in the state of California, for sure. And and leave if I ask you that same question, what would be your answer as to your personal mission statement for your 
gardening, plant cultivating, plant loving life? I think for me, it's a deep sense that nature is medicine. Um, you know, since I was a little girl, if I got upset, I went outside. And even today, you know, when I'm frazzled or overwhelmed or, you know, can't just can't think clearly because of, you know, the state of the world as it's been in the past year and work and everything else, I go outside and, and everything starts to fall into place. And so for me, it's that when I am outside with, I'm with plants, I feel like it brings out the best in me. Um, it's very grounding. It puts me in the present. Um, my imagination kicks in and paying attention. And I just feel like it's, it's so healing. And that's something that I feel deeply everybody has a right to and needs to be able to have access to. So I think that that's really where, where I'm coming from. It's, it's, it's this deep sense of needing this natural world. Yeah, yeah. Now, Chris already got us started on um, on this next question that I have for each of you. And that is, I would love for you to each give the listeners today a sense of where you were born and raised and the, the people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom these things would be valuable. So let's get started. Let's go in, in reverse now. And I'm going to start that with you, Leave. Give us a sense of, of where and when you were, you were born and raised and, and the people and places and plants that really informed your current value for these things. Sure. Well, um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles for first part of my childhood and then Sacramento um, when I was older. And I can still remember um, living in our condo complex in Torrance, California. We had a you know, little, little tiny backyard. And the first time my parents planted vegetables in it, and it was like magic to me. Um, and I think um, I've always just felt really drawn to that that sense of potential that, that happens when you garden and plant a seed and have things grow. And I mean, I come from, you know, I, you know, when I look at my ancestors, it's, it's a long line of Swedish farmers, you know, that came to the U S and grew wheat in Kansas. And when my parents moved to Los Angeles, we were suddenly in a, you know, it was before I was born, but in an urban area. And I think that, you know, especially in those conditions, um, the access to plants and having an ability to just get your hands in the earth is really, really key. And I think wherever I've gone my whole life, I've, I've felt the impulse to plant a garden, to start something. And, um, and I think it's that connection in a, in a very real and direct way that has um, expanded over time into an interest in, in native plants and our wildlands and wanting to bring that closer to my own life. Yeah. Now, Chris, I know you already took us down this path in a very beautiful way with your, uh, your grandparents and your early experiences, but is there anything you would add to what you have already shared with us along, along these lines? Yeah, I, I I never really considered myself a gardener 
even though I was gardening, I think that was kind of just part of my, my upbringing, you know, and, and, and helping my parents grow food and, and even flowers. And, um, and so it was always part of our lives, you know, uh, I think it it's in our family, you know, not just our immediate family, but all my aunts and uncles would pride themselves on showing us their, their apples and their corn that, you know, that came out of the ground and they'd have chickens and, um, just taking advantage of every, you know, little space they had, uh, you know, they were living the American dream, um, you know, coming over here and, and just living that dream and still holding on to those roots, right. Of the Mexico agricultural land and bringing over those seeds to grow our ancestral foods. And so, to this day, you know, my mom will slip me some seeds in a little paper towel and say, hey, try growing this. And just this, you know, just this week, you know, with the rains we had, I, I went out and put some of these uh, squash seeds that she said were going to be the best, you know, squash. And so, you know, put them out there in the right spot. And, um, you know, what's interesting is I don't have a yard at the moment, you know, where I rent. Um we don't have a yard. And so I have a parkway though. And I have planters out front on the sidewalk that get, you know, uh, messed with by people walking by, but it's still something, um, it's still land. And so I still try to garden it. And once again, I don't consider myself a gardener, but I do grow a lot of plants and food and, and, and try my best. And so, you know, it's still in my blood and, um, and, one day I hope to get a place that has a, a nice uh, plot of land, you know, so that I can grow my natives and grow my food and just, you know, feel, feel um, comfortable. Um, that's, that's always been my therapy to go out and, and, you know, go barefoot and uh, feel the land and fill it in my, you know, my fingers and my hands and grow stuff. Uh, I think it's, it's part of what we need as humans, you know, for our therapy, for, you know, easing into this, uh, this world that we've created that may not be as natural. Um, I think that's something we still have, right. To connect to, to the land. Um, and so that's where I'm at. And, and, uh, you know, I live in the, in the inner city. And so I think we grasp onto any, any, uh, growth, um, you know, natural growth of, of, of ourselves, but of the plant world, anything we can grasp onto, we, we do. And so I definitely do grasp onto that. Yeah. Well, and I, one of the things that really is striking me from, from what both you and Leave have just shared is um, already I'm hearing this, uh, there's this universal refrain of our human impulse to garden is directly interdependent with uh, our sense of survival and our sense of, of place of these plants that are in our places and our ability to eat and in, engage with our own survival. John, that brings me to you and giving us some of this background information on you as well. You, you've already said you are an, an elder at the age of 70 and uh, that you are engaged in this natural history education of younger people. Who were the people and places and plants that addressed a young John and, and grew him into being a man for whom this was of great value? 
Well, it's kind of ironic because I came to be interested in native plants at a late stage of life because I, I was born in Erie, Pennsylvania. My parents moved out here to Venice Beach in California in 1956. And I only lived eight blocks from the ocean. So you can figure where I spent most of my time. <laughs> and not only that, but my dad worked part-time as a deckhand for Santa Monica Seafood Company. And so I spent a good many hours on the pier. And so my whole life, I had sort of been focused on the marine environment, even to the point I went to UC Santa Cruz to study elephant seals. That's and, great. Uh, and so I think I initially became interested in native plants when I started teaching biology, first at Bakersfield College, because one of my final exams was to have students go out to Arvin, which is east of Bakersfield, but it has one of the most amazing wildflower displays anywhere in the state. And so they had to go out as their final project and see if they could find and identify 10 different species of native plants. And they had to do some sketches and journaling about them. And that was their final exam. Later on, when I started working for Camp Key, which is the current environmental education program, it's a five-day overnight outdoor education program for students from Kern County. And they would bring them to the coast where I worked and we would take them out on hikes every day. And so it became imperative that I start learning the names of the things that students were asking me about. And so spending more and more time doing that, and then I made friends with a gentleman named Rick Halsey, who's the director of the Chaparral Institute. I started learning a lot more about Chaparral vegetation, and I started recognizing things in my own neighborhood here in Los Osos. And so that kind of guided me toward CNPS, actually. Um, my friend Rick asked me to come and do a talk at the annual conference a couple years back. And so he wanted me to talk about native plants and, and how I use them as part of my teaching. And so I kind of focused on Pinnacles National Park, which is where I take my students on a regular basis and you know, introduce some things like native bees species and, and talk about how they, you know, uh, resource allocation and how some bees only come out when certain native plants are blooming. And so I've basically been teaching myself more or less about native plants and native plant society in general uh, as an adult. That I think takes us quite beautifully to CNPS. And one of the main reasons that we are in conversation today is to talk about where CNPS is now and how it is meeting and evolving. So maybe what I'll do is have each of you share how long you've been involved with the California Native Plant Society and how uh, you you came to be interested in partnering with it in its evolution uh, in these times. Um, and maybe I'll start with you, 
uh, we'll go we'll go backwards because John, you just sort of started us on this and and how you came to be interested in native plants and uh, doing a lot of self teaching and involved with the the society. What what year would you have become involved with the Native Plant Society and and maybe share your wake up calls, your sort of personal wake up calls about this great need for our Native Plant Society to. Uh, grow up into the best version of itself in this moment uh, when we are all seeking greater environmental justice as well? Well, like I said earlier, it all started with my friend Rick Halsey because mm-hmm. he was organizing a workshop session for the annual conference that was held in Los Angeles. I think it was maybe three years ago. And he was looking at his speaker list And suddenly it hit him. He says, everybody that I've listed so far is a white-haired white man. He says, there's something not right about this. And he and I had met at a conference, the AEOE, which is the Association for Environmental and Outdoor Educators. And he had given me one of his little green marbles, which is a little symbol that he used with the Chaparral Institute, which basically meant that I was an honorary chaparral naturalist at that point. And so he contacted me about doing the workshop, which I agreed to hesitantly because number one, I knew I was not a native plant specialist and I was being asked to go and speak in front of a lot of people who were scientists, had been in the native plant society for most of their adult lives, you know, and I suspected that they were not going to be very many people of color. And I was right. Um, I did my talk. It, it went over well. Uh, I was one of two black people at the conference, and there was probably 1,400 people there. Later on, I was contacted by Liv, who wanted to do an interview for Flora. And I agreed to that. And then shortly after that, she invited me to be part of the diversity working group, which I agreed to as well, which is why I ended up sitting in front of my computer right now. (laughs) (laughs) So it's her fault. This is Cultivating Place. Next week is California Native Plant Week. And today we're in conversation with three members of the California Native Plant Society, addressing the past, the present, and future of the society for the greater good of the entire society. Animal, vegetable, mineral, human, and more. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more. Hey, it's Jennifer. Just a little under one month from now, my second book, Under Western Skies, emerges into the world. And I'm really proud of this collaboration with photographer Caitlin Atkinson. I hope it's clear, here on the podcast especially, that everything I write, record, think about is aimed at elevating the way we as gardeners think about talk about and embody this gardening impulse and the many ways that that radiates out into the world. And I want you to hold that idea in your hands with one of my two books. 
Become a sustaining member of Cultivating Place by following the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com at the $10 or more per month level between now and May 31st, 2021, and I will send you your very own signed copy of Under Western Skies. If you'd prefer to receive a copy of The Earth in Her Hands, just make a note of that when you set up your contribution, and I will send you that inspirational compilation instead. Yes, no matter which book you want, your donation will total more than you would pay at a bookstore. But you'll also be investing in and voting for the ongoing production of this show and these conversations you love and value. Our show is listener-supported. I depend on your support. So please, if you can, donate. And if you're already a monthly sustaining member of Cultivating Place, thank you. Look out for a separate email from me about how you can get one of these books. You listen to these conversations. You know that something deeply generative occurs when we intentionally talk and think about these plants and plant spaces and plant people that grow us. You feel less alone. You feel bigger and deeper, more powerful and more hopeful. Please, donate now. Follow the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com at the $10 or more per month level between now and May 31st, 2021. Keep our Cultivating Place community green and growing. And gift yourself a book that will inspire you, engage you, and keep you company. We all grow better together. In preparation for California's annual week-long celebration of California native plants, today I am in conversation with staff, board, and community members of the California Native Plant Society, exploring how this specific environmental and horticultural group is working to face the past the present, and the future of who and what they are and who and what they hope to be. When you share that you were one of two Black people in this relatively large audience of people, that right there indicates a pretty serious fault line uh, in the certainly CNPS, but we also know uh, that that is a fault line that is true of almost our entire what we call you know mainstream environmental groups, and when when you think about why it's important to change that in terms of our groups these these environmental groups being truly effective, uh, why why is that important? Can you can you articulate that from your own perspective, John? Well, I think that it's important because I think these groups that have been mostly exclusive are unaware of just how deeply involved people of color have been in nature historically. And that, you know, a lot of the systemic problems that conservation groups have has to do with how they were organized initially. 
you know, those spaces were not really designated for people of color. And so that subconscious bias has turned into a sort of systemic racism that most people are probably not even aware of and not even comfortable talking about. And so I think it's important for people like me to just stand up and hold up a mirror sometimes and go, what do you see when you look in the mirror and you look at a group of people from CNPS, how many people of color do you see? And then you have to ask yourself, why is that? You know? And some of the answers are not gonna be easy and it's not gonna always be comfortable. In fact, it's gonna be uncomfortable most of the time, but it's something that needs to happen if CNPS is to survive. Because quite frankly, like I said earlier, I'm already in, I'll be 71 in July. And if there aren't other people of color involved in these kinds of groups, then they will not reflect the demographic reality of the United States. 10 years from now. And they don't represent the demographic of the United States right now today. And it should feel uncomfortable because if it's not uncomfortable, no one's going to change uh, how they do things. And, you know, I would, I would also argue, um, you know, that it's not just about survival, but it is about actually being relevant and effective for ultimate goals. And, by only representing one slice of our population, you are never going to be effective in terms of of advocating for a true interdependence and caring and stewardship of of a, a natural world that is intimately um, integrated in, in every single person's life, one way or the other. And um, when you when you, I'm going to move to you now, leave and um, you know, as a staff member uh, there at CNPS, maybe give us a little bit of your own history with CNPS, and then walk us through some of your personal wake-up calls, which I, I know have been longer lived than this past single year. Um, but this past year really fast-forwarded some of the work you were already trying to get underway at CNPS. Um, you know, how and and where did these wake-up calls come to you uh, personally and then, you know, as a staff member at CNPS? Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. Um, well, let's see. I joined CNPS on staff just over four years ago. And, um, you know, you, you take a job leading communications and public affairs with, um, at least a few years ago, a native plant group and don't necessarily, I didn't imagine that, that we would be here, you know, at, at the intersection of these really important issues. You know, I, I think, you know, I remember joking with my friends about, you know, what I thought the job was going to be like when I took it. And, and sometimes these things come in front of you unexpectedly, and then you have to act. And I think that, um, you know, it had been it had been clear as an organization, at least to me, that that we wanted to do more early on. And you know, I was fortunate to meet Chris pretty early on in my tenure with CMPS, I kind of feel like he was emerging as a leader in our organization right around the time that I came on staff. And 
So being able to have a lot of conversations with Chris from the beginning um, has been really, really helpful for me um, and, and helped set up some of the mental model of, of what we were trying to work toward and what we wanted to accomplish in the organization. But, but I will say that I think, um, you know, CMPS, like a lot of organizations has had a lot of good intentions, but I think that, that a lot of people and myself included have for too long been in a state of varying degrees of complacency and, and even paralysis about what to do. And I think moments like, you know, what John describes about what it was like to be one of two people, Black people at, at this conference of, of many, many people, that's, that's a hard look in the mirror and that's a wake up call for sure for any organization. It's, it's very sobering and there's no hiding from it. And, um, but I think, you know, Jennifer, like you said, you know, we have to get to a certain level of uncomfortableness to really change. And I think that what the Black Lives Matter movement did for us this year was to create the catalyst and that and the discomfort that as an organization we needed to be able to really force some change and start to take some real action. So, um, you know, and I would say too that the other thing that's been so important about what happened with it is that we started it. It empowered people to start sharing a lot of stories, and I, you know, probably like a lot of you know certain white people, I felt like there were things I knew and understood. And what the past year showed me is that there's so much I didn't know and there's so much still to learn. But I mean, I have been shocked at what I have learned in the past year about, um, you know, black botanists being arrested, just trying to do their job. Um, the very real fear that a lot of um, black people in particular face and, and deal with and even deciding whether or not to go out to Wildlands for a hike. Um, you know, for fear of harassment or even worse. And, um, and that, you know, and, and the harassment that indigenous Californians face when they're trying to gather or practice in the way that their ancestors have. Um, and I, I think having our eyes open to some of that made me realize, and I think a lot of folks realize just how directly this this intersects with our community of native plant lovers and, and how much we needed to start taking quick and real action wherever and whenever we could. Um, and I think, I guess one other thing I just wanna mention right here as a wake up call is something, a thread that I see happening um, as we've started to talk about this more as an organization um, and try to make space for more of these conversations something that comes up sometimes. And, and first I'll say that the majority of people are really supportive of these conversations. We've had a lot of people thank us for them and, and a lot of people express a lot of support. Um, but we do occasionally hear from people, you know, directly to my team or in our Facebook group um, who, who voice this, this sentiment that I'll refer to as plants, not politics. Um, people who, um, want to be able to talk about the wildflowers they're enjoying or get some plant IDs or talk about gardening tips or beautiful wild spaces. And they feel like these 
these conversations of, of equity and justice and diversity are, are an incursion on, on the space. Like it's somehow it's, it's scope creep of our mission or it's, it's off topic. And that's been um, something, that's something I just, I really want to address that head on and, and say to folks that feel that way in the most heartfelt and empathetic way to please just, when these issues are coming up, um, to take a pause and let there be some space um, that what some of us may feel is off topic or like scope creep is deeply relevant to many other people. And um, to understand that, that as white people, when we try to shut down these conversations, it feels like privilege. It is our privilege and, and feels like that to the people who are living at the intersection of these issues. You know, California native plants and our habitats intersect with so many of the most important issues of our time. Climate change, wildfire, extinction, resource allocation, land management, and, you know, and all of that has systemic racism built into it. So everything we touch is highly political and directly impacts people. So, um, so it's really important we make space for these discussions and, and for people to have them. I, I appreciate that. And um, I think those are all important things for us to have on the table here in this conversation. I'm, I'm, I just want to, I'm kind of reminded of how things seem to be sort of cyclical in this country. I remember back in the 50s, uh, there was a book published called The Green Book. And it was designed to show black people where they could stay if they were traveling across the United States, where they wouldn't be accosted or you know, be put in harm's way. And so you know, I thought about that for a while when I was watching a YouTube video that was put out by a black ornithologist down in Georgia. And he actually has a YouTube video that explains how you should behave if you're a black man birdie. And he goes over like how much ID you should bring with you. Right. Make sure that you keep your hands steady. If you're accosted by a police officer, make sure you got these things and these things. You know? And there was a whole list of things that you needed to make sure you had just because you were out there in nature. And so that cycle continues, you know, even you know, 60, 70 years later. Chris, I'm going to move to you. And of course, you have a really interesting um, intersection yourself uh, with your own work in the land conservancy and with your personal history and sitting on the board of CNPS uh, currently as chair. So maybe you could share with us some of your wake-up calls in the past however many years uh, that there were these these huge hypocrisies and inequalities in the environmental world and perhaps in CNPS specifically, whether by intent or by ignorance um, and complacency and how, uh, how do you see your role as being really important in that conversation as an individual person? Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. So, I mean, I, I think back on um, on how I got involved with CNPS to kind of, so I got involved with CNPS, you know, I, when I was in college, I, I was, I would always cross paths with the, 
with the group, but I never really engaged. Right. Uh, you know, I'd see the wildflower, the wildflower posters that, you know, you see around right there. I'd see them in the classroom. And I think I found a newsletter at a nature center and I thought it was pretty cool, but where I grew up, you know, there was no CNPS right in the, uh, in our area. Uh, um, I don't think anybody was engaging with us. And so I didn't know how to engage. Um, and so when I started working, you know, a little closer with native plants, I started to hear more. And I think I even did some vegetation mapping with CNPS staff at the time, but that was pretty limited. Um, and so I finally said, hey, you know, I think I'm going to go to one of these meetings that are in this newsletter that, that I found. And I did. And it was really awkward. Um, you know, I was younger, I was brown. And uh, I, you know, I was like, well, I don't know you know, other than plants, I don't know why I would ever hang out with these people. And so I just didn't go back for a while. But uh, at some point I said, you know what, the heck with that, like, who cares if I feel awkward, I, I need to, I need to continue with my personal mission, right. And so I went back, and I started to get more involved. And, you know, I, I wanted to really make an impact and help the natural world. So I, I put those blinders on and I started to go to all the meetings and I would raise my hand when the volunteers were requested. And, and so I got sucked in. Right. And, and here I am um, because of that. But, um, you know, I, I was pretty persistent in wanting to learn more about native plants and get more involved. And, and I put those blinders on and I ignored that the group was pretty monotypic and, and I just kept pushing forward, but I realized that not everyone will do that. Right. And, and people won't come back. And so I want to make it so that, you know, people don't feel that way when they do come to a meeting or a field trip, I want to make sure they feel comfortable and safe and, and not notice, you know, what's, what's obvious. Um, and so what, you know, along the terms of wake up calls, you know, they were always there for me. Um, you know, since I was in school and getting into environmental work and conservation, you know, all these conservation type groups uh, that I, you know, were part of, or I'd go to the meetings or the conferences, or, you know, they all have the same issue. Um, and so I know here we're talking about CNPS, you know, we have our leadership here and, um, and this group is working with, you know, within CNPS, but it's just a widespread issue in the conservation movement and, and it needs to be addressed as the bigger problem that it is. And so, you know, I, I'm really glad that others um, are doing very similar work, um, you know, because it has to be addressed on all fronts. Um, it, this work is important to me um, because I've, I've experienced the problem, you know, I live it, so I, I get it. And, even though I am in a privileged position, I still have to confront the racism and the microaggressions within this conservation world. Um, and so I, I, I'm really dedicated to, you know, within CNPS where I can, um, you know, make decisions uh, or lead things in a certain direction. I want to make sure that the path is, is set up to move forward with solutions, right? Because we know the problems there, but we need solutions to, to get through this. Right. Um, and did you have anything to add there? Well, uh, let me start here. So since I got involved with, with CNPS, you know, these things have always been talked about, right? 
and then tension was always there. I think, you know, leaving John bring that up, but there was no catalyst to move us forward. And that word comes up a lot because um, it's important. You know, there, uh, it was, you know, status quo, just keep, keep moving. You know, we're, we're sticking to plants and, um, you know, we needed that major event to, to catalyze us, to, to move us forward. Um, and so we're, we're going to use that momentum to make these changes, you know, because I, I don't want that. I don't want that. And I know we don't want that in CNPS. We don't want that momentum to, to fade away. Um, so we're going to, we're going to use it and we're going to stay on it and, and, and really look for solutions on how we can make things better. And, and I do want to clarify that, you know, um, a large chunk of CNPS is volunteer based. And, you know, we, we have a certain amount of volunteers, sorry, a certain amount of staff. Um, but we have a lot of volunteers, right. And so the volunteers make a huge difference, such a big difference. And, you know, a large reason that CNPS is where it's at in this day and age is because those people stepped up to volunteer. Um, and so, you know, for us to be, more accountable and to make change, um, we need more people to step up and move us in that direction. But I also want to point out that, you know, we also need people to step back so that others can step up, right? And so the space has to be there for people to step up. And I'll pause there because I don't know if uh, if you're going to ask another question about this, but but we also I think we also need to need people to stop and listen, right? I, I get asked by people all the time on what they can do on this effort. And the first thing they can do is listen, listen to black indigenous and people of color. Um, and I've seen it, I've seen people start to listen, right? There's a little less interruption from the older white gentleman that knows everything at the meeting. There's a little less pushback when, you know, some of these ideas that we're talking about are brought up, brought up at meetings or at talks. And so I, I know we have a long way to go on this, but it, because it's not, you know, this is not completely gone, the interruption, um, you know, and it, there's this term, right, of taking up space. And I see it all the time. And it's, it's pretty prevalent in the conservation field, especially by, by older white men and men in general, right? And so um, I see that people are starting to take back their space, right, in many forms. And, um, you know, this can be at our meetings or on social media and even on Facebook, right? Um, and it, it's important. It's important for, you know, the space to be shared by all and for people to step back so that others can let their voice be heard. Um, so, I mean, we, even we've created a, a space for Black, Indigenous, and people of color within CNPS. And so I think we're moving forward forward. It's, it's slow, um, but we are moving forward. And I think that is what this conversation really hopefully is, is getting at is not a final destination or a single solution, but in a, a making space for these things to be discussed and considered and invite everyone who's listening to keep thinking and listening and making space for one another. And, you know, I, I, it is clear that to, to me, certainly as a middle-aged white woman, 
that in the garden world, certainly, um, middle-aged white women take up a, a lot of space. And so there is, there is a lot of space to be made for other people. And it's inviting, it's asking other people what their perspective uh, might include that would, uh, that would um, make them, not make, that's the wrong word, but that would make these spaces more welcoming to people that don't look like me or like an older white man. And, you know, to be in an organization that was constructed by white men of a generation of the beginnings of the Sierra Club or the Audubon Society of, you know, John Muir, who is in many ways held up as a, you know, a an icon of, of environmental virtue, but to have that lens expanded into something that John pointed out, which was that he was also a believer in, in eugenics and that there was absolutely structural racism and exclusivity built into the beginnings of this space. And so one of the things we're having to figure out is how do we you know, how do we unbuild that? How do we dig that out and compost it and cover crop over it with a better model that brings everyone to this table for the love of plants, not preserved, a, you know, without some for others, but preserved for the benefit of all of us. And certainly if the bio, the great biodiversity of what is now called the state of California teaches us anything. It teaches us that uh, our, our lives depend on diversity. This is Cultivating Place. Next week is California Native Plant Week. And today we're in conversation with three members of the California Native Plant Society, addressing the past, the present, and future of the society for the greater good of the entire society animal, vegetable, mineral, human, and more. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more. So thinking out loud this week, this is not an easy conversation I am in with these three brave individuals about the California Native Plant Society. In fact, it's a hard conversation. And it's not a final statement. Rather, it's an opening for many more conversations going forward. For me, the endurance of these three individuals in their spaces and with a belief that the world of environmental care and keeping can be much bigger and better than it has been is what I take home. To hear the final portion of the conversation in which Chris and John and Leave summarize why for them it is worthwhile to stick with improving the CNPS we have and the many other environmental groups sticking it out through these growing pains, despite painful and often shameful fault lines. This says a great deal to me. If there are any issues here you would like to chat more about with CNPS, I urge you to reach out to them, to be kind and patient and determined in continuing to reach out as you might need. If you would like to speak more with me about my own take or my own positions, I can honestly say, please do. 
please reach out to me by email or voicemail or comment online and I will respond. I've grown more in the last five years around my understanding and vocabulary for these kinds of conversations than I would have ever dreamed, beginning with my earliest work in these arenas, leading up to the earth in her hands, and to now. I am thankful and grateful beyond measure to several big-hearted Indigenous, Black, Hispanic, and Asian gardeners who have pushed me challenged me, called me out, and reached out to me, shared with me, and helped me to grow greatly. I have a lot more listening and learning and evolving to do, slowly and imperfectly, but I will continue to do it with my whole open garden heart. In preparation for California's annual week-long celebration of California native plants, today I am in conversation with staff, board, and community members of the California Native Plant Society, exploring how this specific environmental and horticultural group is working to face the past, the present, and the future of who and what they are and who and what they hope to be. It is this incredibly widespread organization, um, but it has such a structure that the the staff and the administration at the state level is is relatively small. Um, but it has great reach, as you just intimated, Chris, because of its chapter system. And each of these chapters has their own membership and their own volunteer core that then feed back into the state level. And 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 I know from experience that, you know, depending on which chapter you, you go to in the state of California, um, if you are a person of, of color or of an immigrant background, you might feel either unwelcome or unreflected. And in some cases, to be honest, you might feel very unsafe. And so, you know, these are, these are not new issues. Gender and racial, racial disparities are, are alive and well. And yet I know that we are trying to open up the conversation and start to model um, a different thinking and a different hope. And so I'd love for each of you maybe to share with me and with listeners what what you see as some of the ways that at least the state level and board and, you know, council of chapter members is perhaps uh, trying to show up effectively in this moment um, with some of the actions you've taken or some of the um, issues you're discussing at the equity and diversity group and share those forward with listeners to just get a sense of of how we're trying to move forward in a tangible way. I could take a first stab at it. Um, well, first I, I'll say, yeah, Jennifer, you, you really hit the nail on the head. We're, we're a complicated distributed organization. And so um, we have Um, We formed a a small working group to begin to just start to look at like, how how do we start to implement change given the complexity of our organization? And and, um, that's that's been really helpful. And I'll I'll get into some specifics about that in just a minute. Um, 
what I'll say is while we have a long way to go, I really feel like we've kicked into action. Um, I also feel very hopeful that um, staff, our board, and, and there are people at every single chapter that are really passionate about this issue. And so I think we've got a, a really strong network of, of folks to start with in this work um, to help us start to address you know, these different levels within the organization. You know, there's, there's stuff with staff, there's stuff with leadership, and then there's our whole big membership and volunteer base. So it's, it's a lot of folks um, and, and it's, it's gotta be done with a lot of compassion for everyone involved. Um, but some of the specific things we're, we're doing, um, we formed that our, our JEDI working group, we call it JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversion, Diversity and Inclusion. And um, <laughs> yeah, thanks John. <laughs> and, um, and with that, one of the first things we did was to start to um, capture suggestions from people all over the organization, as well as suggestions and comments that we've received on social media of things that um, people are feeling like we need to take action on. And um, capture all those suggestions, start to organize them and identify what are things we could take action on right now you know, today. And, and, and if it's too big to take action on, how can we break that down into something smaller that we could do? So really trying to um, get organized that way. Very important to this though is that, and is that we hired the Avarna group who um, works in the environmental community on these issues to help guide us through the process. There's so much work to do and we recognize it you know, it, it's taking a look at everything we do in the organization and we really do need skilled, skilled help um, to, in order to um, approach this work in an organized way and make sure we're getting the things done we need to. Um, so I just wanna say one thing that's really hopeful from my perspective is, you know, that's not an inexpensive engagement and our board of directors unanimously approved it you know, in a very supportive way. And I think that alone is a really encouraging sign about the organization's commitment to, to this work. Um, our HR team has been working really hard for the past year at um, updating and changing our hiring and recruitment practices so that they're, they're more inclusive, reach more people, um, allow us to have a, have a better chance of making sure our our paid staff are um, reflect what California looks like. Um, there's, you know, something from, you know, I oversee all of our communications platforms and something that my team is really focused on is using our platforms um, to be allies and, and really trying to use um, our social media channels in particular, but also our magazines um, and, and other channels to elevate and support and celebrate other voices and groups um, that we don't necessarily need to be the ones to try to be saying all of this, but there are some really great people and groups out there um, doing this work and, and, and talking about these things better than we could be. And so really just sharing those perspectives and trying to get as many voices into the mix we think is a really, really important part of this right now. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention that, you know, I would love to have Chris talk about more. He, he talked about this BIPOC group. He's recently formed a BIPOC group that um, I, I think is a, a really important thing to do right now. So 
those are just some of the sort of like high level things that, that we're working on right now. I'm happy to answer any additional questions about them. I would love to stick with you for just one, um, for, for two more questions, leave. Um, and, and those are a little bit to put, put you on the spot, not un, unkindly, but um, some specific questions. So uh, the first is that there is this kind of persistent um, conversation about native plant groups and, you know, native plant preservation, especially perhaps in the West, having some association with uh, like population control or anti-immigration. Could you, could you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that question, Jennifer, because it's, it's something that has really been a deep concern of mine for for a long time and um, that is that there there is this conflation between native plants and nativism I guess I guess we'll say and okay, which is deeply ironic given that uh, you know I for for one am you know an immigrant here as are <laughs> exactly. as are all European descent people so exactly okay, sorry. go right. ahead yeah so you know I have a few things I want to reflect on here. One is that a lot of times when scientists hear those arguments, they just quickly dismiss them because they're like, of course, that's not the same thing. You know, we're not talking about the same thing. But I think we have to be really careful about the rhetoric that's used when we talk about when we're doing work with invasive plant species, for example. And, you know, I think people... Um, it starts to it starts to feel creepy to people when they start to hear that there's there's good living things and bad living things and labels like that are put on things and so um, you know invasive plant species do present a real problem to our ecosystems they they choke out out that are essential to the ecosystem functions of that given you know area um, but. And, and in fact, invasive plant species inhibit biodiversity. Um, so, so I think like I'll just I'll just say that there scientifically about you know why it's important that that why we have volunteers you know spending weekends pulling out you know um, pampas grass and and um, ice plant and things like that 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 they're trying to to support local ecosystems and making sure that the plants and animals that have, have been here are able to thrive. Um, but that is a completely different matter than when we're talking about people. And in fact, at the core of what you know, native plant work is about, is about preserving biodiversity, the greatest number and diversity of species we can. And so if anything, the ethos is and should be a celebration of diversity in all forms. And, and that extends to, to a worldview around how we view people too. And, and so that's one thing I want folks to know, but I do want to acknowledge that there has been language out there that doesn't, that it feels wrong. You know, when we refer to alien species or even invasive species, or we use word like species even sometimes, I think those things can be alienating for people. And, and, and I think it's, it's also important that when it comes to plants specifically, we 
we, we are clear that there aren't good plants and bad plants. Plants are just plants. And that there are just plants that, that um, sometimes can choke out other ecosystems and proliferate in exaggerated ways that can create real problems for the other um, life forms there. And maybe, uh, it, maybe it looks like John has something to you he would like to add here. Well, I, I think that um, some things that Liv was saying really apply to a lot of the conversations that I hear on the Central Coast. For instance, eucalyptus. You know, there are tons of eucalyptus trees here on the Central Coast. And everybody who knows anything about them knows that they inhibit the growth of lots of other plant species anywhere in their vicinity. But they've also come to be recognized as endemic. And even when there's discussion of trying to remove eucalyptus, there's this other body of folk who go, but that's where all the monarch butterflies like to hang out. Mm -hmm. You can't take away the eucalyptus trees, but they're destroying the ecosystem underneath their canopy. Yeah, but the butterflies hang out there. You know? So you get this conflicting you know, um, debate about the value of quote unquote invasive species and when does a species become endemic mm -hmm. as opposed to invasive? You know, that's a whole different category like some of the wild grasses. And I also think that it's possible to learn a lot from what we call invasive species in terms of their reproductive cycles and how they're able to take advantage of limited resources in ways that some native species can't because of their root systems, things like that. And I think one thing I would add, Jennifer, is that we have got to approach these issues with some emotional intelligence. And, you know, um, <laughs> fondly, I can say that not all scientists, some are great at that and some are not. And, and that we, we need to recognize how language plays out and feels. And if it's striking people a certain way, not just dismissing it, but pausing to think about, okay, how do we, how do we talk about this issue differently um, if, it's, if it's triggering folks in a certain way that feels toxic or wrong? Um, and, and like what John was saying, I think that, that there, there is a lot of gray area when we talk about native plants and place, you know, the whole nature of life itself is that we are all in motion and transit all the time. And where we draw an arbitrary state line or whatever else about and, and call it, this is what the native plants are here or whatnot. Those are, those are, that's murky territory. And, and so I think that, that we all need to approach these issues with care for the environment but also care for each other and some, some humility that this, this isn't as clear and black and white as, as it might seem. Right. Yeah. right. And, and I think, um, you know, there is, uh, there was a, a great quote from a man I interviewed, David Godshall, who's a landscape designer down there in Los Angeles area. And he was talking about whether, how he was deciding to, to leave a, a non-native tree in his own garden. And it was, um, what are those great big sort of purple flowered trees? Uh, jacaranda. And he said it would be a tragedy born of puritanical ignorance 
to pull that tree out at this time. It is a mature habitat giving shade providing tree um, that has lived this long. And, and I think, you know, this comes back to what Chris was saying early in our conversation was the importance of, you know, inviting and welcoming as many people to this table and then making the space to hear what they have to say from their perspective, and then taking that into account as we make decisions. You know, and and back to my question about this bizarre association with this quote unquote, you know, topic of population control. The fact is the greatest thing that we we can do to, to help with humans taking up resources on this planet is for the United States of America to stop having the middle and wealthier affluent, you know, or all of the westernized industrial world stop taking up so many resources. Uh, That would be a good first step, period. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I I really want to speak to that briefly. And please feel free to edit away, Jennifer, because I know I've said yeah, a lot. But I think this is an important I do, I do one because want, I think it, it really it's is very dissonant uh, as well as... It really yeah. is. And I I think, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this um, this population control issue. And, and I think that that, there are some, in, well, we know there are racist seeds yep. there that I think informed the environmental community. Yep. Um, in in the 70s, there you know were some pivotal texts that came out that influenced a whole generation of environmentalists about this population issue, and um, and I think some folks still carry that. And so this this and and I think that's it, it's so harmful because it creates this divide between people and the environment by treating the human species as the problem. And I think where we are now, the the modern view of this is is exactly what you said, that it is about resource consumption, not the amount of people in different places. And so I, I really deeply hope that we can see uh, that rhetoric die down as more and more people turn away from it. It is stale old thinking. And, um, and personally, wherever I see it come up in our communications, I'm going to shut it down. Right. So then I really appreciate all of that, uh, all of that response leave. And I, I really want to move as well to, to John and Chris, um, in terms of how you see CNPS showing up in some of the actions it is taking, uh, to meet this moment. And, you know, I, I want to address again, another irony, which is that, you know, environmental groups and garden societies of the most mainstream visibility um, have long been dominated by by white people. And, and yet the fact is, especially perhaps in the state of California, um, what is completely apparent is that BIPOC people are also the, the dominant uh, members of the agricultural field that are providing our food, that are caring for our restoration lands um, in, in much greater numbers. And so that dissonance also has to be bridged, uh, I think, um, not only in real action, but in acknowledgement and discussion. And so I would love to go to um, why don't we Why don't we go to you, John, and then we'll end with Chris from a board level perspective as well as per, as 
personal perspective? Well, one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about during the course of this conversation is that for many white Americans, gardening was a hobby, something that you did in your leisure time. Most people of color garden for subsistence. It was not a hobby for them. And so the fact that there's, it, it, it's kind of like what happened with a lot of the other conservation groups. There was a subset of individuals who got together who found that they had common interests, but they didn't look outside that subset to see if there were shared interests among other groups or cultures. So gardening has been a cultural aspect in my family since my great-great-grandparents were here. You know, my granddad had 40 acres and a mule, right? And gardening was just a way of life for him because we couldn't get into supermarkets, right? And the nearest one was probably 20 or 30 miles away anyway. And so my entire family were subsistence farmers, you know, and they didn't call it gardening. They called it making dinner. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, you know, I do think that it's important for conservation groups across the spectrum to look at the historical involvement of BIPOC individuals in nature in general, right? And in, in outdoor education, in gardening, you know, uh, there is a whole history that has completely been ignored that needs to be incorporated in order for people to come to understand that there are integral part of something that's on a continuum as opposed to the originators, which they aren't. Chris, I'll move to you with this same kind of question is, you know, how, how do you see CNPS showing up and, um, you know, maybe from a personal perspective, but also at the board level in this evolving into something we all hope it can be? Yeah, so at a at a board level, I think Lee touched on it. You know, we have unanimous support from the board to fund Jedi work, uh, to do land acknowledgments, uh, and to have the tough conversations that that we've been kicking down the road for so long because nobody wants to have tough conversations, right? It, it really challenges us. So I think we're you know we're at a, a point in time where we we are confronting. Um, these things um, and um, putting our money where our, where our mouth is. And, and once again, you know, I hold myself and, and the board accountable, you know, that we have a long way to go where, you know, where we can't just change things, you know, from one day to the next. Um, and so it's a process, but we're, we're moving forward on that. And, you know, and I, I acknowledge staff too, you know, the staff is calling for these changes and and they have unanimous support of, of the work that's being done as well. Um, they're very loud too. They're very loud about it. And so I appreciate that, right? Because they're, you know, they live CNPS. They're full-time CNPSers, right? Where a lot of us are, are volunteers and, you know, do this on our free time. You know, I have a full-time job and, and this is, you know, on top of that, where they're in it, um, they hear uh, all of it. And so, um, you know, we have staff representation in our Jedi group. And, and so they are very serious and committed and, you know, are um, pushing this forward. And personally, I, I, 
you know, I hear CNPS in conversations now uh, with friends that I would never have been able to have a conversation uh, about CNPS, right? They would never have understood what CNPS was or what it, the mission was. And these are, you know, these are, uh, you know, brown women, you know, that are out here, we're, we're working on other things. We're working on environmental justice issues or, you know, working with the houseless folk in our community. And the conversation goes to CNPS and, you know, in, in just passing. And um, I, I get excited because that means that, um, you know, Leave and her team are doing the work. They're, they're, they're getting out there and they're reaching people that were not reached before and you know showing these people that cnps is pretty much on the same page that they are right we we care about nature we care about native plants um and it's i mean most people do right so recently uh it was um it became apparent i think in the last issue so the California Native Plant Society has two regular publications. One is a more kind of scholarly journal, uh, by uh, which up until just recently has been named Fremontia after a a white botanist of the 18th century, I think 18th century, named uh, up by the last name of Fremont. Uh, this has been renamed recently. Could you walk listeners through how and why this came to pass, Chris? Yeah, I can try, um, and I'll, uh, I'll open it up to John and leave as well. But you know, th- this decision, uh, we- we've talked about it uh, actually for a little bit, and so the decision to change the name of Fremontia, you know, it's it's about the people who've been and continue to be systematically excluded from the conservation community. So exactly the conversation we're having today, right? People who may not be botanists um, or may not be into native plants may see the name of Fremont as someone who, you know, was not a good fella, right? Um, This for CNPS, this is a type of barrier, um, for participation by our BIPOC folk and other other groups, other marginalized communities. So yeah, we took the board and and staff, we took that big step and said, we're gonna change the name of Fremontia. And uh, you know, it's it's symbolic in a sense, right? And if you saw the last issue of Fremontia, you know, we we shaded out Fremont, the word Fremontia as a, almost a symbolic gesture that that was going away. And we've received overwhelming support for this name change because it's the right time to do it. I mean, we should have done it before, but I feel that we're making a lot of changes at this time. And and that was a a necessary change. Yep. And it's sort of, I I would liken it to, um, you know, the removal of Confederate statues in in the Mid-Atlantic or the Southeast or anywhere else that, um, you know, this was a man who was not only a botanist, but he was in the military and he was involved in uh, the genocide of Native Americans in the West. And and so there is a lot of baggage that goes with that name that uh, carries over into what what impression anyone might get of of who CNPS is and what they 
hold up as exemplary and valuable. Are there other ways that we, we as members, you as board, you as staff, you know, John and I as, as peripheral members, help to perpetuate this momentum and make sure that it is not just lip service, but that it is true welcoming and opening of space so that we have as great a diversity of people at any decision-making table in this arena? I think it's a difficult task with some of the older members, especially the you ones know, who contribute to what used to be named Fremontia. With my, my experience in academia as a grad student at UC Santa Cruz, which was considered one of the most liberal college campuses in the country, I became acutely aware of just how deeply embedded bias was within academia. And you would think that scientists, you know, by and large, would be more liberal thinking in terms of that, but they are some of the most bigoted people on the planet, just based on personal experience. I actually sat in meetings, you know, at UC Santa Cruz, where I heard people use the N-word when I was the only black person in the room, right? Uh, I mean, there's, and there's, there were things like I'd walk into a class and, you know, the professor would look at me and go, are you sure you're in the right place? And I go, well, I am a PhD student and I did register for this class. And we go, well, did you pass this class yet? Or did you pass, you know, I would actually have to go through a, a minor interrogation before I could take a seat in the classroom sometimes. And so that is gonna be a, a real tough nut to crack because our academics, unfortunately, are some of the most bigoted people in the country. And I would add, I, I would add to that. I think it's really important that um, researchers and people with those academic credentials are careful carefully examine their exercise of, of scientific rigor and method um, as they criticize other voices. Um, I know that we have had um, members of the indigenous community explain to us that some that they that they share they have concerns about publishing their perspectives um, and and knowledge in more mainstream scholarly journals for fear that they're going to be picked apart and attacked by, by science, Western scientists who have, you know, a different lens. And, um, and that's something I think that we, we really need to look at, um, you know, that, that there, yes, of course, you know, we want to uphold scientific method where Western science is concerned, but recognizing that sometimes we need to look at things from a different lens and that it might not be appropriate to apply the same sort of thinking or, um, or criticism in those scenarios. One classic example comes to mind. When I attended the CNPS conference in LA, I went to this rubber chicken dinner, <laughs> with like 50 bucks a head, not to mention the $400 a night to stay in a hotel, which is, you know, sort of, reeks of exclusivity right off the bat. But when I was sitting there at dinner with my friend Rick and I watched people bidding on the right to name a plant, 
And I remember one of the one of the bids went up to like five thousand dollars just for the privilege of naming a plant. And I asked myself, did anybody ever stop to ask any Native Americans if they already had a name for that? Why is it that these white privileged folks get to attach their name to it, but nobody's asked whether that that plant already had a name? And it just struck me as sort of one of the dichotomies that conservation groups face. Yeah, and it's a big dichotomy. And it is um, that right there, that opening of uh, perspective, uh, you know, in what was a a fundraising moment um, is what allows people to say, wow, I never, I didn't think about it that way. And of course, the indigenous Americans who, uh, or the indigenous people who tended the land had a name for that plant. Um, And they probably had more than one name. And um, it opens up how much room for improvement and growth we have in these spaces. And so I want to end with this question for each one of you. Why is encouraging and supporting the evolution of a group like the California Native Plant Society into a better and on its way to the best version of itself it can be with the greatest representation possible? Why is that worthwhile? Like, why as as an older Black man, you don't say, Oh, never mind. Like this isn't even worth it. This is not relevant to me. And and same thing for you, Chris, and same thing for you, Leave. I mean, there are so many problems in these arenas. Why is it worth it? Because I think it is. Uh, it is for me, which is why I'm having this conversation with you. But I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And I'm going to start with Leave, and I'm going to go to John and then Chris? Well, I mean, ultimately it comes down to what kind of world do we want to live in? You know, as an employee, this is where I spend a a large chunk of my life. So personally, the kind of world I want to live in is, is a world that is open and full and, and rich. And, and this work supports that. California native plants belong to every single one of us. And, and this mission should, encompass all Californians. Um, Practically speaking, no organization has a future if they don't dig deep and do this work. Um, So, you know, we could look at it very pragmatically as a nonprofit as well, too, and see, you know, like the world is changing. California is changing. Whites are the minority. And, And if you want, you know, just purely raw logic, if you want to have an organization succeed, especially a member-based organization, you better make sure you're making space for the people that are California. So I'd, I'd say those, those, those things are, are what really drive me. John. I, after 70 years, have become accustomed to being first to do things with my color. Uh, well, not because of my color, but when I was in college, you know, I was like only the second person of color or African-American to be in, um, invited into the PhD program in biology at UC Santa Cruz. 
I was one of two at conference. You know, I'm also on the California Conservation Committee for Sierra Club now, which is something that I resisted doing for a long time, just because I actually did a talk about John Muir and his ethics for AEOE about five years ago. And, you know, I had resisted even beginning to get involved with things like Sierra Club, just because I thought that they had a different focus than I did. But eventually, you know, I came around to the idea after talking with some other people and they said, John, somebody's always got to be first. And so I figured, okay, <laughs> I guess it's me this time. <laughs> and um, so that's, you know, I'm glad that there was an opening. You know, once I decided to go through with this, you know, Leave, you know, was the one who opened the door for me to get in. Well, actually, Rick and Lee both. They kind of bookended me. <laughs> and but I'm happy for that because I was not aware, number one, of the complete makeup of CNPS and what it really stood for. I mean, just based on the title, I could surmise you know, what their efforts were focused on. But I had no idea about the societal structure, the infrastructure, and the cultural structure uh, of most of the conservation groups. And so I'd kind of been operating out here on the left wing, so to speak, you know, on my own. But I think that I have some valuable insights that will help people in making the transition. And so I'm willing to stick it out just for that reason. Thank you. Chris? Uh, yeah, echoing what John and Leave said, uh, you know, we won't have a future and we won't be successful if we don't do this work. And so, you know, any organization or group or community that doesn't do this just doesn't have a future. Uh, personally, I don't want to be part of a group that doesn't want to evolve, become better and be representative of the communities it's, it's supposed to serve. Um, CNPS serves California, you know, which is very diverse. We serve native plants, which are amazingly diverse, right? And so, so, so to do our work justice, we need to be diverse. And, and that's to understand everyone we are serving. And so, you know, CNPS is currently doing amazing work in the conservation field. Um, I'm part of this work. I'm part of the conservation work, but I'm also part of the Jedi work. And so I'm not going to give up on this type of work without a fight, um, you know? And so combining both these things is, is the ultimate goal. It, it brings to mind one of the things that Robin Wall Kimmerer says, which is um, that the greatest work she does is at this intersection of human culture and uh, indigenous ecological knowledge. And that, you know, Western academic science is better for the enormous quantity and um, depth of ecological knowledge that is within indigenous communities and uh, that it's not an either or, it's an and also, and that together we are all better learning from each other. And we will serve native plants and ecosystems better uh, if we are truly representative of as wide a population as possible, those that are just trying to survive and those that are um, are, are well-established and see it as a hobby 
Um, I think all of those perspectives are going to be important for all of us moving forward. I am just so appreciative of your time and your candor here today. And uh, I, I would love to ask if any of you have anything you would like to add before we, we close. I just want to say that, you know, we are listening um, and we're listening to what the needs of the community are and what CNPS can do. Thank you, Chris. John? I'm happy I was invited to be a part of this. I'm committed to seeing the JEDI project through. Uh, I am really gratified by the fact that CNPS actually acted upon my suggestion about hooking up with Ivana. And so that tells me that they're really serious about this. And so I'm going to hang in there. Thank you, John. Leave. I'm just really grateful to John and Chris. Um, appreciate their work a lot. Um, appreciate their working alongside me um, as we're trying to, to do better. It means a lot. Thank you all very much for being guests on the program today. It has been an honor to speak with you. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Leave O'Keefe is Senior Director of Public Affairs for the California Native Plant Society, also known as CNPS. Chris Sarabia is Conservation Director of the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy and the Chair of the Board of CNPS, a volunteer position. John Sanders is director of the Delphinus School of Natural History. He serves as a CNPS community member and volunteer consultant. I am deeply grateful to these three individuals for this conversation on the past, present, and hoped-for future of the California Native Plant Society in service to the incredible diversity of native plants in this environment and the many diverse people making their lives here as well. Listen in again next week when we return to the spring and closing in on summer fever of the vegetable garden with Scott Daig of Tomato Mania. You will not want to miss his energy, expertise, and love true love of all things Solanum lycopersicum. Join us as we heat up for summer. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com, where every week you will also find the show notes for each week's program, including lots of great photographs and more. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.